0: Is chapter two and the second part of our look at the first eleven verses. And so if you open with me there, we'll read it in a moment. We read from Second Samuel Chapter twenty four the story of David and the census because I wanted you to note a couple of things as we're in a section talking about sin and repentance and restoration note that David sinned, and it was the Lord who was angry with Israel for their sin and made, you know, incited David, it said, to sin so that he could consequence the nation. But David was guilty because he actually sinned. He had the choice, and he repented of it, and after he repented, it was shown a consequence. People want to think sometimes today that repentance ends your consequence, but it does not. The consequences may still flow for what the sin is, even consequences from God for them. So as we continue to look at this, last week we looked at the sin of the church and not administering church discipline, and this week we'll be continuing on mostly from starting at verse 5. And looking at this, the, man, the man and his restoration while in his sin. And looking at it from that perspective this week. So let us read the chapter, or read at least the first 11 verses, and continue our study. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in Timothy. Oh, chapter 2, I'm sorry. I had a little toy before. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, And with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused you pain, he has caused it to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overcome by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote you, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. May the Lord at his blessings the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the words of encouragement and understanding that you have put in your scriptures for us. We pray that as we consider this matter, that the punishment is enough and the restoration of the offenders required, that we would have wisdom to understand these things and grace to live them out in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you remember, I tied this passage to 1 Corinthians 5 and the sin there, and I believe that's what it's talking about. Uh, Even if it's not, the process and the results are still going to be the same. Remember in chapter 5, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, he says, You are arrogant. Aren't you you rather not to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So the, the punishment he received was being disfellowshipped. They weren't to eat with him. They weren't to do anything with him other than to encourage him to repentance. No fellowship, no membership in the church, no communion, no service other than to hear the word. A harsh punishment for one who is a Christian because you're living with the Christians and you have separated from the world. And particularly in their circumstances, the world has despised and ate them and isolated them. Today, people are quickly welcomed back into the world when they leave the church, and the punishment may be more fatal to the unbelieving or the marginal-believing Christian as they just turn their back on the church. But in this case, the sin was very severe. Now, when we think about the personal sins and how we should deal with them, the Scripture has a guideline for us. Everybody knows Matthew 18 Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 cover these things. And if we look at it carefully, it tells us how to go about and resolve the matter of a private sin. If you feel it can't be overlooked, and it's proverb says it's to a man's glory to be able to overlook a sin. If it's a minor insult, you just can overlook it or make a comment to the person that that's not a really appropriate thing and move on. But if it's the kind of sin that can't be overlooked, then you go to the person privately and talk to them about their sin. If that doesn't work, Scripture requires a charge to be brought by two or more witnesses, so you have to take one or more, one or two people with you to talk to them. Now, there has to be evidence, of course. Right? If the evidence is just, I say he did this, and he says I didn't do that, You know, they're not witnesses of anything but gossip and an unsubstantiated accusation. So there needs to be some evidence to, to be able to move on to that point. And if there's no repentance and it's something serious enough or it's a public sin where, you know, the outward effects are known or significant and other people are being harmed, even if they don't realize the sin, then it needs to be taken to the church and the church must judge in the matter. Of course, the first thing the church must judge is, is this something worthy of church discipline, or is it something that should be directed? And when I was reading, there was an entertaining thing. The pastor says, you know, if my wife goes to the session and wants to charge me with the sin of greed and and gluttony because I finish off the last of the ice cream without a second thought every week, then the church is going to say that's not really worthy of church discipline. They might counsel him to be more considerate of his wife and her ice cream, but it's not going to be you know, a matter of church discipline. It's not, this isn't for every frivolous little thing. This is for a serious matter, something that brings um, disgrace upon the church of God, upon Christ, and harms God's people. And then the church, having called its sin and convicted the sinner, the sinner needs to repent if they won't repent, it can lead to excommunication. Uh, an example I read given was a man who, whose friend said, you know, that basically he was, going, he was involved in this sin, but God told him it was all right. And so he took some people with him. Men would not repent, brought it to the church. As the man insisted, God said, it's okay for me. And the man ended up being excommunicated because he just wouldn't repent of the sin. And eventually people are going to know. He didn't say what the sin was, but that's often the case in sexual immorality where they say, oh, you know, it's all about nobody's harmed and we love each other or whatever, and they think they can get away with it. Well, the matter of First Corinthians 5 wasn't a private sin. It was a public sin. It was known by everybody. Even the pagans knew and were disgusted by what was done. We might think, well, that's not really addressed by Matthew 18, and it's not. You don't have to go privately to the person because it's already a public matter. One of the reasons you go privately to a person is stated there in Matthew 18 that, you know, if they repent, great, you've gained your brother, done. No more need for public disgrace or public shame if it's a secret matter or private matter. If it's notorious in public, then the church needs to deal with it for the sake of the testimony of Jesus Christ and the sake of the testimony of the church, the sake of the Christian faith. It's already to that point where it's a public matter, so it's not something that needs to be handled in secret. Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 5.1 makes it clear that it's, it's like that. There's sexual immorality reported among you. Kind not even tolerated among the pagans. For man has his father's wife. If the pagans knew it was serious, and it was unrepented of, then the church needs to address it publicly. And I think that's what happened. Paul said, "Put him out until he's repented." You know, make the show to all of the believers, and to the unbelievers, that we take the sin seriously. It's not we don't wink at sin. The Catholic Church got into a lot of trouble in my youth because it was discovered that the child molesters were just moved to another city and molested more children time and time again. And they said, well, you know, there's forgiveness if there's repentance. We'll talk about that more a little later, but there's also consequence and repercussions that don't go away just with saying, I repent. We know his repentance must have been accepted because he's, they're commanded to restore him. So you must have repented, and you must have been accepted. The problem for us is we don't have the details. But I feel I'd be remiss if I didn't bring to remembrance the, the principles of what this is about. Because we've last or I really need to confess my sins. We need to confess them to God, because He will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness," John tells us in First John, First John 1:9. And so we really do need to. Now, there's been a lot of writing over the years about confession and what we should look like and what it should be. And there's a series of books written by Ken Sandy on peacemaking, making peace, particularly within God's people, within the church. And how do you get two warring factions who one has offended and the other has offended them back? How do you make peace with them? And He comes to the conclusion that really it all starts with proper confession of our sin. So I wanted to take, even though it's not covered directly, it's implied here that it's been done, and talk about that. He lists the seven A's of a good confession. And I think it's really helpful. And I'm going to follow his outline and use a lot of his words and a lot of my own words, because you know how verbose I can be. Uh, But he lists seven things that need to do. And it's, it's mainly aimed at sin between group, individuals and parties, but it's useful in understanding the basic concepts of, of sin and repentance and confession. So his first day is address everyone involved, everyone affected by the sin. You can't address the ones you want and leave out the ones you don't, and skip the ones who offended you back. You, know, you must confess your sin to everyone. And it starts with God. It's God's law we've broken. It's God's authority we're rebelling against. It's God's glory that's been stained by our sin. Particularly as people know we're a Christian, it becomes a public stain on his glory. But even if it's a private sin, it's God who's most offended. We need to understand that the sin in question is a sin before God according to Scripture. If it's not a sin according to Scripture, then it's not a sin. All right, so we need to understand that what the Bible has to say about the sinfulness of that specific sin. A lot of times people skip over this. Oh, I've offended. I've made them angry. That may not be a sin. And you know, if you tell them that they, what they're doing is wrong, or you challenge their theo- question, their theology is wrong, that's not necessarily a sin. It might be done in a sinful manner, in which case your arrogance or your scorn or your you know, lack of respect and honor might be a sin. But you may have made somebody angry without making them sin. We need to understand what is the sin and how is it sinful before God. Understand God's view of that specific sin that you're trying to repent of. What have I done and how has it offended God? And how has it offended my brother? If it's an offense to the brother because he's proud or arrogant and can't take the mild rebuke of saying he's wrong, then it's not something you necessarily need to repent of. You might need to repent of how you did it but not always. We, understand, we need to understand also then the price that God has paid for that sin, the price Jesus paid to cleanse us of the guilt of that sin. We need to hate that sin with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and we must desire sincerely to turn from that sin and not be committing it again. Forgive me this time and next week I'll ask you again. It is not repentance. It's not really a legitimate confession. We need to be truly repentant of the sin before God with a humble and contrite heart and maintain that, con- that humble and contrite heart in our confession and in our repentance from beginning to end and including all of the aftermath of it. Uh, David didn't say, well, I have repented and it's not my problem anymore. You know, he continued to weep before God that you know, the people are suffering because of my sin. In fact, they were suffering for their own sins, but... The form of judgment was through David's sin, or through the consequence for David's sin. And we need to really maintain that contrite heart, dealing with all the other people involved. And if we don't, then our repentance is really more hypocrisy. Now, if this sin only exists in your heart, and no one other than God was affected, then the everyone really stops at this point. However, remember what Jesus said. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we harbor in our heart doesn't simply become a sin against God. It spills out of our mouth. It spills out of our entire conversation, our way of life. It affects the people around us, even if they don't know about the underlying sin. And we need to be careful to repent to all of those and affect it. We confess that a specific wrongs to everyone, every individual, every group, every person we hurt, and even to those who witnessed the wrongdoing. The general rule of your your confession needs to reach as far as your offense has reached. And one of the writers gave an example which I'll use. Uh, If you were really angry with your spouse and the kids in the car were there and they heard your outburst and the things you said, confessing and repenting to your spouse isn't where it ends. You need to also confess to the children that what you did was sin and that you recognize that and ask their forgiveness as well. So the first point, our confession needs to reach everybody we've sinned against in in that sin. As far as the sin is gone and known, and all those who were harmed and all those who know of it, we need to confess to. The second one is a hard one. Second A is to avoid if, but, and maybe. In other words, don't try to excuse or blame shift your wrongdoings. Now, it's really difficult to find a confession that doesn't use if, but, or maybe, or something along those lines. It's hard to give that unqualified confession and an apology, repentance. But the quickest way to wreck a confession is to use words to shift the blame to others or minimize your own guilt. The classic bad confession, I'm sorry if I've done something that upsets you. What you're saying is, if the if there is shifting the blame. It's implying you don't know whether you did something wrong. Maybe I'm innocent. But because of you, I'll take some responsibility here. You're not accepting your personal responsibility. It sounds like you're just trying to get somebody off your back. So avoid excuses. Man up and accept responsibility for your sin. This third one is admit specifically both the attitudes and the actions. The more details you provide when you confess, the more likely you are to get a positive reaction. You don't confess to make yourself feel better or because God will accept your confession. You confess because you want the restoration and forgiveness of the offended people. So the more specific you are, the more detailed, the more honest you are in facing up to what you've done, the more likely they are to believe that you're sincere. The fourth one is to acknowledge the hurt and express sorrow for that hurt. And as somebody to respond positively to your confession, you need to really make a point to show that you, you realize you've harmed them, you've hurt them. It goes with number two and Number three. If you say, I'm sorry if you felt hurt by my actions, there's really no... You're going to say, yeah, right, I don't believe you're sorry at all. You're saying, I did nothing wrong, you're just weak. I did, you, I did nothing wrong, but you're just making trouble, so I'm going to repent to get out of that trouble. You need to aim to show the person that you understand that what you did hurt them. You must have felt embarrassed when I said those things in front of everybody. I'm sorry I did that to you. If you aren't sure how the other person hurt feels, ask. You seem very upset. Help me understand what I've done. It's very dangerous to assume you know how they feel when you may have misunderstood completely. You can ask them, have I understood how I hurt you? So you need to acknowledge that it did harm. The fifth one, accept the consequences. Accepting the penalty your actions deserve is another way to demonstrate the genuineness of your repentance. Saying things like, if you don't you know, forgive the consequences and you haven't really forgiven me, you know, now you're the perpetrator and I'm the victim. I mean, how many times have we heard that? You have to forgive me and therefore I don't need to pay you back for smashing your car up. No, you still have to pay back. You still have to fix the damages. That's never taken away. As we saw in the example of David, David didn't get away with taking a census. God threatened a punishment if they did that, and David went ahead and did it anyway, and so the punishment came. Consequences don't go away because we repent. You might need to do something like correct the piece of gossip you've been saying. You may need to work hard to pay for the damages caused to their property. You might need to make restitution to repair any of the harm you've done. But if you do that, it makes it easier for people to trust you and easier for people to believe that you're sincere. If you say, nope, I repent and I'm done, I don't have to do anything. Nobody's going to believe in that kind of repentance, and it's not a real repentance. Accepting the consequences and making restitution are part of being repentant. The sixth one, alter your behavior, changing your attitude and your actions. You don't really mean that you're sorry if you don't commit to not repeating the sin. If You don't take specific positive steps to correct your heart and your actions. Then are you really repentant before God? Or are you really repentant before those who are owned? It's a pretty simple principle just say, I, I repent today and I'll come back seven times today and seven times tomorrow and seven times the next day and 77 times, and you're not really repentant. Sincere repentance includes explaining to the person how you plan to change by God's grace in the future. What you'll say, what you'll do, the attitude your heart will be in, and you need to be specific and you need possibly to find somebody to hold you accountable. Somebody who will help you in your efforts to change the way you are, particularly if it's one of those sins that's deeply embedded in you. If you're an angry person and you always get angry, or you're and you always say things that aren't confirmed and you shouldn't even be saying that you don't need to repeat, then you may have a lot of work to do. And part of your repentance needs to be figuring out how you're going to get that work done, who you're going to have help you, counsel you, who you're going to be accountable to. And the seventh A was ask for forgiveness. If you've gone through all of these other steps with somebody you've offended, they may be to the point where they're willing to forgive you and move on. If you just walk up to them and say, I'm sorry I sinned, forgive me, yeah, it may not be enough. If the person you've confessed to doesn't express forgiveness, you can ask for that forgiveness and that signal that you're awaiting them to decide what to do. Uh, You shouldn't be surprised, though, if people need time. Going to somebody who's hurt deeply and saying, I repent, forgive me, they, they may need time to reconcile their thoughts. They may need time to work through your repentance and think about it, they may want to see whether you're really repentant or whether you're just being you know, the hypocrite asking for repentance to get out of trouble. If somebody's not ready to forgive you, you need to make sure you've done your confession right, thoroughly. And if they're still not ready to forgive, it may be helpful to say something like, I, you know, I know I hurt you, I can understand it's going to be hard to forgive me I want us to be okay with each other, so I hope you will forgive me. And in the meantime, I'll pray in for you and do my best to repair the damage I've caused. The, um, the arrogance of, ha-ha, I repented, you have to forgive me now, is not true repentance at all. And you should ask, is there anything else I can do, just let me know. Now, someone add an 8th A, which is kind of covered in what I just said, which would be allow time. When somebody has hurt you or disappointed you or wronged you, you may need time to process your emotions to get to the point where you have forgiveness in your heart. So, allow time. Sincerity and honesty are essential elements in a biblical confession, using these seven A's as a pharisaical checklist to say, ha ha, I've done it, I've done it, I've done it, I've done it, I'm good, is more likely to do harm than good both to you and to the other person. You know, these are just some ideas to think about in your own heart when you need to deal with the sin, even if the sin is against God. Now, I've hinted at it a couple times. Well, you might be tempted to say, well, the other person also sinned against me, or "My, my sin was a reaction to their sin. They made me sin. And if that becomes part of your confession, then you're being blame-shifting. You're not accepting what you did. David did not say, well, you incited me, Lord, therefore it's not my fault. He said, I have sinned against you. Just because other people push our buttons doesn't absolve us of our guilt. It makes them guilty too, but it doesn't absolve us of our guilt even if their sin triggered yours, if you say something like, when you did this, I was very upset and I reacted sinfully. You're still blame shifting. You're still trying to worm out a personal responsibility. You may need to talk to them about that. But that's what number two was all about. We don't use blame shifting as a way out. We need to confess of what we really did without excuse. Because the metal... No matter what men did to Jesus, he did not respond sinfully. And no matter what men do to us, we still have an obligation to not respond sinfully. And if we say something that comes to the effect of, You made me sin, it's not my fault, then we're not really repentant. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 5, You hypocrite. Take the log out of your own eye first and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Get your own sin repented of and forgiven and then you can talk to them about their sin. As long as you're still a sinner, they have no, no need to listen to you, to your rebuke. So I've gone into all of this because of First Corinthians 5 sin. What would his sin look like? Well, I mean, he took his father's wife what would his repentance look like? Well, his repentance needs to start with addressing everyone involved, who was involved. Well, God first and foremost. It's God's law. He violated The Old Testament is very clear. We don't know whether he despised it and said it's irrelevant, God's word, or whether he said it was wrong. People today often do that. Oh, the Old Testament was wrong. You know, we live under grace. They do things like that. Um, you know, we see that despising of the word and rejecting of the word and considering it irrelevant. Whatever it may have been, that needs to be repented of first. Yep. Acknowledging God's right to judge, God's right to impose the law he judges, and that his law is always right. It comes first. He has to address the wife. She committed sexual immorality with him, but that's his responsibility too. He sinned against her. And the church, he brought the church into disgrace and a bad reputation. And there may have been others who were tainted by his sin or tempted by his sin. What if, we talked about last time, right, one of the reasons church discipline is so critical is because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. His sin not addressed could have caused others to sin either in the same way or just using that as a, well, if it's okay for him to do that, then it's okay for me to do this and sin grows. Little leaven leavens the whole lump. So the church, but also the society, they knew what he had done. They knew it was wrong. They saw that and probably viewed the church with contempt and scorn. And that happens. Why do we, why did I as a young man grow up to hate and despise the Catholic church and Christianity as a result because I consider them all one? Well, because I saw that Catholic priests were going from church to church raping children. Because I saw the the name it and claim it types, the you know the the charismatics making millions of dollars and living the high life, taking money from you know, retired old women who gave up their life savings to buy him his new Mercedes. Yeah. I hated him because of the sin. God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you, Romans 2.24. When we sin, we bring disgrace upon the name of God. People will despise God and despise Christianity because they see the sins of the people, the Christians. And so his repentance needs to be aimed at society as well. They need to understand that he knew it was sin and that he's repented of it. Now, what kind of excuses might he make? Number two, avoid if, but, maybe. Oh, I was intending to help her. We don't know if he said something like that, but by marrying her or by taking her. Uh, That's not a legitimate excuse and should be just discarded. We don't make excuses. We don't know his attitudes or his actions and what he needed to correct well, God knows, and he knows, and he needs to think about that as we would need to think about it as well. Acknowledge the hurt and sorrow for what he had done. I mentioned those under addressing the people by mentioning what they were, how they were hurt. And he needs to really acknowledge that damage. Accept the consequences. Sheen, number five. What would the consequences be? Well, one of them is... It's unlawful for him to be married to her, therefore he couldn't be married to her. Uh, we see that in Ezra 9 and 10, an example of that where priests had married pagan women and were involved in pagan sacrifices, and they actually put their wives away. It doesn't mean they abandoned them, but. but they no longer had a marriage relationship with them because that was sin. They have responsibility for them now the rest of their life, but not not a physical marriage relationship anymore. Uh, yeah. That would be the bare minimum there. Alter your behavior. Number six, you know, he needed accepting and acknowledging that was sin, not involving himself in that particular sin again, being careful about that. Then he needed to ask forgiveness from God, from his father's wife, from the church, from everyone who knew about the matter. The man in First Corinthians 5 was put out of the church, excommunicated, shunned, had no fellowship with him. That, we mentioned, was painful and grievous. Paul writes in chapter 7, starting at verse 9, he says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, speaking of the church here, but to everyone involved, but because you were grieved into repentance. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss to us. For godly grief produces repentance and leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, presumably to the offender. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. Those words were written to the church to talk about their repentance. But I think we see the same thing when it's brought to an individual level as well. Godly grief or sorrow is the sorrow that has the author of God. God is the one who works that grief in our heart. He works that grief in a regenerate person's heart through the work of the Holy Spirit, conviction of the Holy Spirit. Worldly grief, on the other hand, is more like what Judas experienced. He was disciplined. He was put out of the church. And what was the result? He committed suicide. He had sorrow and he had regret, but that wasn't true biblical repentance. It didn't save him. Instead, it inspired him to kill himself. Discipline causes grief to the unrepentant. That grief should lead them to repentance. And apparently this man's repentance was acceptable because... The case has moved to the next point. I spent a little too much time on my first point. But the second one is it Restoration, verses 7 through 10. Restoration is the ultimate purpose of church discipline. It's not to punish the offender, but to bring them to repentance. We just read... Godly grief produces repentance. that leads to salvation without regret. The punishment had a purpose. It wasn't just to hurt him. It was to make him regret what he had done, repent of what he did, and lead to salvation. And that kind of grief is really without regrets. The punishment, when required, is done to produce repentance. Now, going back to number to Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and he alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he listens case close, there is no punishment. There might need to be restitution. You stole from me. I'm sorry I stole from you. I'll pay you back. Restitution. That's not a punishment. There doesn't need to be punishment because the purpose of the church punishment was to bring repentance. Confession and repentance still requires to all who are involved, uh, all who are aware of it, especially if it's a public sin. I'm not saying it disappears. But I'm saying the punishment, such as excommunication, is no longer needed because that has the purpose of bringing them to repentance, and if they're already repentant, they don't need to be excommunicated. As a side note, restoration doesn't mean that somebody is restored to their full position. The trust that was broken by their sin may not be restored. It has to be re- rebuilt. Your heart doesn't change but because you repented. The temptation to sin doesn't change because you repented. You need to alter your behavior, change your attitude and actions, and this may require your accountability. I mentioned that before in point number six. The idea being, you may need to re-earn that trust. If the church accountant uses their position to embezzle money from the church, if they're repentant and promise to pay it back and they're forgiven, it doesn't mean they get to go on being the church accountant. They may need to lose that position. Uh, They may one day restore their trust and confidence. Re-earn that trust and confidence, but it doesn't mean they go right away back to their position uh, and that was the fault everybody found with the Catholic Church. And just the priest said, okay, I got caught, I repent. And they did the same thing in the next town. And they said, I repent. And they get, no, you don't necessarily give them back the position where they're going to be tempted to their sin. And you don't necessarily give them back a position of trust. You have to work those things out case by case. All that being said, the sense of purpose of church discipline is to bring about that restoration that gaining of your brother, that's the purpose, right? We start this because we want that person repentant of their sin and their full relationship restored with God and with the church and with their brother. With that being the purpose, restoration then becomes a big focus. So I remember when I first became a Christian hearing that the Christian church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. I think Paul, in verse 7 and 8, is really dealing with that danger. Danger to the repentant sinner that must be over- prevented. And that is that they can be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Sorrow brought about by shame, but also sorrow brought about by guilt. And if they become overwhelmed by it, they may break. They may give up. They may leave. How are they Overwhelmed. Well, if the sinner is truly repentant of their sin, they're going to understand the guilt of it. The depth of their sin, the harm it has caused. And you think about it in this case, the shame brought to the church, the shame brought to the community, the shame brought to the woman. It's a terrible thing. And maybe overcome by the consequences, not the discipline, but the long term ones. I remember a friend I had in Cincinnati had trouble coming to church on Right to Life Sunday. And I knew exactly why. It was obvious. So we, we talked about it. and Even though she had repented of having an abortion some 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier, whatever it was when she was a teenager, she still felt the guilt of murdering her own child. She had never overcome that. And with the church hyping up the, the horror of abortion and murder and how can you kill your own child, you know, all that feelings of guilt and the overwhelming feelings really weighed down on her. And that can really break a person over time. In this case, you know, the shame of what had happened, the guilt of what had happened could really hurt. We could also be overcome by the loss, the loss of the respect of others, the loss of our self-respect, the losses from making com- compensation. Here's this man who obviously cared for the woman, and yet now he realizes that care worked out in a sinful way, and he can't care for her the way he had intended in his heart. Being convicted of the sin of it, 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 there's a loss there. And so to prevent the person from being overcome by by the, the, the burden of their sin, Restoration needs to be taken place, taken care of by the entire church. They need to do what they need to do for the repentant sinner to see them restored to their place in Christ in the community. This was go last time, but it starts with repentance. Repentance, I mean, repentance once complete brings forgiveness, and forgiveness is very hard to do. It's in our sinful nature to hold a grudge in our sinful nature to want to elevate ourselves by remembering the shortcomings of others. How many times has we known somebody, even ourselves in our own heart, when we've done something wrong and we feel really bad about ourselves, we rehearse all of the things others have done. Their sins are worse. You know, we have that tendency, and that's not forgiven. That shows we haven't forgiven. We also like to put people in their place, remind them and everyone else of their sinfulness. One of the biggest forms and most def- destructive forms of gossip is in rehashing other people's sins that have been repented of. That ought not to be. That's not the way. We must forgive the repentant. Remember Jesus' parable, the Lord said, How often shall I forgive the one who sins against me? I wanted to read this, but I'm running short on time, so I'm going to summarize it, but that's in Matthew eighteen twenty-one 21-35. The man, oh, the king was settling accounts, and since there was no way to pay his account, the man who was brought before him was going to have his wife and his children and all he had sold to pay for his debt. The man begged the king not to do that. And the king forgave him. On his way home, he finds another servant who owes him a small amount of money, and he chokes the man and beats the man and has him put in prison. When the king heard about this, he was not happy. And the final result is, So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness is required, and if we are unforgiving, we do need the person to repent, and they do need to confess their sin to us if they want to be forgiven by us. But if we refuse to forgive, God may refuse to forgive us. Having forgiven them, it doesn't just end with, okay, I forgive you and walking off. We need to comfort them. By ending the punishment and assuring them of our forgiveness, we give them comfort. That comfort is needed to prevent excessive sorrow from overwhelming them. This this is also a biblical obligation in dealing with repentance and forgiveness. The church has to end its punishment and assure its forgiveness. The individual must assure their forgiveness and that they will not, you know, seek other retribution. They might seek compensation, as I said, but punishment is ended, and they need to understand that. They need to be restored to the church, to communion, to the ordinances, to the fellowship, if that was revoked from them for their sin. They need to be assured of God's forgiveness for them. Remember that first John passage we read already part of it, but if we He says the blood of Jesus, his Son cleanses us from all sins. If we confess our sins, who is faithful and does forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John one seven through nine. We need to assure them that God has forgiven them, and if God has forgiven them, so have we. We need to especially, verse 8, reaffirm our love for them. In this particular case, the man was expelled from the church in disfellowship. The whole church was forbidden to show him love beyond, you need to repent. That's the greatest love we can show to a sinner. But they weren't to show him the love of fellowship, the brotherly love of caring for his needs, of caring for him. And now the church should welcome him again, reaffirm that brotherly love, reaffirm that concern for him, reaffirm their concern for his well-being, show the same kind of love and the same strength of love they did before he sinned. Treat, treat him in that regard, as far as the brotherly love, as if he had not sinned. We need to forgive and restore and comfort the repentant sinners, and we need to do it as Christ has done for us. Uh, Think about how Christ forgives our sins, how he doesn't continue to punish us. He doesn't despise us for them. He doesn't mistreat them for it, us for it. He has forgiven, and so we have to forgive. Now, we covered verse 9 last time, so I'm going to skip right over it. But verse 10, the church in its official capacity took care of the sin, dealt with the sinner. The sinner has repented. The church has forgiven them. Paul, who's absent, was one of the people offended. This is a church he had helped create, that he had helped teach, that he had shown the oversight of, and it looks bad for him to have the church involved in this sin and not dealing with it. But note that he says that since you have forgiven him, for your sake I forgive him as well. Meaning, you've taken care of the problem I trusted it's resolved, I forgive that person as well. And anyone in the church who was guilty of helping the church overlook the sin and refuse to deal with it, you know, that's all taken care of, Paul says, because you've resolved the matter. Uh, gracious for him. Forgiving the sinner is right, it's important, and it's really important for all parties. But think about verse 11. There's another great value, that Satan will not outwit us. It literally says, so Satan will not gain an advantage over us. The metaphor is like that where a greeting merchant or a peddler uses every opportunity and every shortcoming of yours to find a way to gain an advantage over you so that they can cheat you or charge you more, get a better price. Uh, I think that's the metaphor here, and I think that's what we need to understand that Satan is looking for every advantage over the church. If church discipline is neglected or viewed with contempt— They see the sin and temptation and allow it to go untouched. It's great for him. He can use that, encourage other people, tempt them into sin, and they say, Well, that person got away with that. Yours is much less than that sin. Certainly, there's no problem for you. It's not really a sin, then, is it? And people can fall into temptation, and the church can be disgraced. Yeah, that church allows sin, they don't care. And then the kingdom of God can be disgraced. Look at God's servants. Look at God's people. Do you really want to be like one of them, living in debauchery and sin? And so it works out very well for him. And on the other side, all right. Well, again. Satan gains an advantage when discipline is used for tyranny, to lord it over others, to force your control. How often have we seen in church history and even today that we may even know where somebody wants to be the ruler of the church and they use church discipline as a means of crushing their opponents, crushing those who won't submit to them. Or they just want to lord it over them to feel great about themselves. Yes, you're a sinner, I'm not, you know, I'm higher. You're down there because I have this sin on you. Satan can use that to destroy the testimony of Christ in the church. He gains an, an, an advantage when discipline is too harsh, when it's excessive, because everybody sees that as wrong, both the sinner and the people around them, and society as one at large. And especially when repentant children of God <clears throat> repentant children of God are not restored. They're not allowed back into the church. They're forced to leave hope. Uh, it says we're not ignorant of Satan's designs or we're not ignorant of Satan's evil purposes. We don't know them with 100%, but we're not ignorant of them either. We're not ignorant of the designs completely. We know he can transform himself into an angel of light under pretense of showing just indignation for sin and keeping up that strict righteous discipline. He can destroy the souls of men. He can ruin churches. He can bring true religion into contempt. We need to be careful. There have been people throughout New Testament history who have insisted that somebody who falls away into a gross sin after their baptism cannot be restored at all, ever, no matter how sincere their repentance is, no matter how righteous their life becomes. Now, we may think of that and think, oh, they're terrible, they're Pharisees, they're worse than Pharisees. God has said, restore them. But we do see it today, even in conservative churches, because, let's face it, we all have that short list of sins that are unforgivable. That adultery, child molestation, homosexuality, abortion. Now, people will not think that they should be restored. We need to be careful of that. If Christ has forgiven us and restored us to our relationship with God, and that relationship with God is not severed by our sin, but we confess our sin and repent of our sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, certainly the repentant sinner, be it at their salvation or the ten-thousandth time after their salvation, is restored to God, then shouldn't we be willing to restore the repentant sinner to fellowship with us? That's what the Apostle Paul calls the Corinthians to do here. It was a case of gross sexual sin. Everybody knew it. Everybody understood it. The man was repentant. Reestablish your love for him. If it happens there, it should happen in all of our thoughts of dealing with sin and repentance and restoration. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that For us, we are restored in our relationship with you. All that our salvation from the many sins that we have committed, many small, many, many, many great sins. We thank you that you do not treat us according to our sin, but according to the life of your Son who has paid for our sins. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to take that same hard attitude that you have shown to us, and show it to those around us who have stumbled in sin and been restored through repentance, that we might restore them fully and love them once again. Pray for your grace and mercy in that, and that we would all always be repentant, willing to confess, willing to deal with our sin truly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.